Colossians. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, uh, you can use the Black Pew Bible there in the rack in front of you, and you'll find Colossians on page 983 of that copy of the scripture. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, our text this morning is verses 3 through, uh, we'll deal with 3 through 8, but we'll primarily be focusing on verses 3 uh, through 6. Um, I'm glad you're here, by the way. I know it probably wasn't easy to make it through the snow. Uh, hopefully it wasn't too bad for you. Snowy Sundays uh, remind me of a story from the life of one of my favorite uh, preachers of all time. He's called the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and the, the, the very day that he was converted to be a Christian was on a snowy Sunday uh, morning. He was, it's, a, it's an amazing story, really. He was uh, trudging through the snow, and he came to a, a, a little church it, the snowstorm was so bad that the, the pastor of the church wasn't even able to show up. And so I think it was a deacon. Someone might know the story better than I do. Maybe a deacon or somebody decided just to fill the pulpit for that Sunday. And there's just a handful of people there. And, and I think uh, Charles Spurgeon was a teenager at the time. He sits in the back. And uh, the, the preacher, not used to preaching, was very nervous. He was struggling along. And at one point during the sermon, he, he, li- he looked up. He looked at the back of the auditorium. He saw a teenage Charles Spurgeon there in the back, he said, young man, you look miserable. Because at that time, uh, Spurgeon was just under the, a load of guilt of his sin and unworthiness. And, and the, the preacher, just a, a lay preacher, not even uh, trained as a preacher, said to him, you look miserable, you need to look to Jesus and be saved. And Spurgeon said that morning, he looked and looked, and he looked until faith was formed with him and within him, and that he points to the day in which uh, he trusted the Lord as his Savior for the very first time. It was on a snowy Sunday morning, just like uh, this Sunday morning, though thankfully the snow wasn't as bad this morning as it was uh, back then. Our text from Colossians, and uh, I'll, I'll explain in just a moment why we're going to do a little bit of a, uh, of a break from our, our series through Acts. If you're new to us this morning, uh, we have been working our way through the book of Acts, but for this coming Sunday and the next Sunday, uh, we're going to be uh, taking a, a break from that, and then we'll dive into Acts again on the second Sunday of January. Um, now, I know every preacher kind of faces the, the decision of what to preach on the, the, the Sunday after Christmas. Are you still supposed to do a Christmas sermon, or are you supposed to do a New Year's sermon? That's the big question. Right? In fact, the question remains for which songs we're supposed to sing the Sunday after Christmas. Some people wish that we'd sing Christmas songs year-round. Some people say, no, by the time we're December 26th, we're done with Christmas songs. Let's move on. But we made a little segue now uh, in this service. But what and you may have your Christmas decorations up, by the way. How many of you still have your Christmas tree? I'd be shocked if anybody had taken their Christmas tree down last night. You have your Christmas tree up. Your Christmas tree is still up. Your decorations are, are still up. But we have the advantage of a kind of um, a lull, a, a reprieve, a little bit of a, a break in activities before we hit. I mean, we're coming off the stress of Christmas and the, the, all the pressure of those events. And now, uh, pretty soon, the, the, the New Year activities are going to come up. And I thought what would be good for us to do this morning is to take advantage of this between time uh, to reflect on what we have ahead of us in the new year. And I want to do, do that on a personal basis this Sunday, but, also, but then church-wide next Sunday. This Sunday, I want us to reflect on where, we, where you as an individual are, where you are right now, and where you're going. And I want to do it this way. I want, to, I want you to ask yourself the question. I want us all to consider this. What qualities 
do I want to grow in in this new year? What qualities do I want to grow in in this new year? And the reason why I'm putting it that way is because if we've learned anything over the past two years, we've learned that, that events are unpredictable. I mean, things just can spiral out of control. I mean, it's hard to, it'd be hard to recognize the world that we're living in today. Two years ago, how much things have changed, how, how troubled so many people have become, how chaotic things seem and unsettling. And we may not be able to determine the kind of storm that faces us in this next year, but we can at least determine what qualities I'm going to grow in in this coming year. I may not be able to decide what kind of uh, winds blow my way, but I can decide where I will set my direction. And that's what I want us to consider uh, this morning. Another way to put it is this. Um, how do I want to grow in the coming year? What qualities do I want to grow in as a sign of true spiritual life? Well, when we ask that question, what qualities do I want to, do I want to grow in, we're immediately in a little bit of a quandary because it would be easy for us to invent, come up with our own list of qualities, our own list of, of resolutions. But the danger of that is that uh, we may be reacting against something. We may not choose the right qualities. But when you go to the Bible, and that's what I want us to do, when you go to the Bible and you ask the question, what are those qualities in the lives of, of people that the writers of the New Testament were so thankful for because they evidenced a sign of life? What were those qualities and how can we embrace those qualities? You find an answer in the Bible that emerges over and over again throughout the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul, but also the letter to the Hebrews and also the letters of Peter, you find a triad of qualities that are consistently set forth as the evidence of true spiritual life. And these qualities are so important, they appear at least a dozen times. This triad, this group of three, appears at least a dozen times throughout the New Testament, and, and the repetition of it and how where it's placed tells us that this is really, really important. And those three qualities are the qualities that I want to unfold to you from this passage this morning and present to you as what, if you make a goal, if, if you make it your goal to grow in any qualities this coming year, then let these be the qualities that you grow in. And here they are. We see them in our text. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... And of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Throughout the New Testament, over and over again, we find this triad of these qualities. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. And if you are to grow in any qualities this coming year, these qualities I hope that you grow in. Now, you, you may think, Pastor Jonathan, maybe you're, over, maybe you're emphasizing these qualities a little too much. Or you just kind of pulling faith, love, and hope out of, out of a, a bunch of different qualities that you could emphasize. Well, if you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I just want to show this to you before we uh, jump into an explanation of these qualities. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 959 and, and 960. 1 Corinthians 13, as many of you know, is an exposition of love. It's the great love chapter, and it describes in... in uh, just the stunning poetic beauty of uh, what love is. But near the end of that chapter, in verse 13, Paul writes this, So now faith, hope, and love abide. 
See, at the, at the end of this chapter that he's exalting love, and he goes on to say that the greatest of these is, is love, and I'll explain why that is the case a little later. But he's saying these three qualities are essential qualities for the Christian. They're essential signs of true life. Now, it's not only throughout the New Testament that we see this emphasized, faith, hope, and love as, as a, as a uh, uh, integral triad of Christian qualities, but throughout Christian history, too. Some of you may be familiar with uh, what many consider to be the greatest Christian theologian of, of all time, and that is Augustine. And uh, Augustine, near the end of his life, he received a letter from a young Christian who said, can you just, can you summarize for me what it means to live the Christian life? And in reply, Augustine wrote a book that's, that's called The Handbook on Christian Living. And, he, and near the beginning of the book, he said, he said, I would have just told you, given you three words, faith, hope, and love. But I didn't think you'd be quite content with that brief of response, so I decided to expand upon it. Uh, we, we see this throughout Christian history in the New Testament, that these three qualities are essential signs of true spiritual life. I kind of think of it this way. Um, these qualities are kind of like the, uh, the green shoots of, of leaves or a plant that, that poke right through the soil in the spring that, that show you that there is real life. Um, se several uh, months ago now, uh, when my wife was gardening, uh, she texted me and she said, I think that the neighbors were all startled by a shriek they heard coming from our yard when, when she had pulled a carrot out of the ground. I mean, a real, a real carrot. I mean, here it is. There's the joy of, of growth. There's the joy of something coming to fruition. Now, when, if you think of it this way, when the apostles, that is, the, the messengers of Jesus, when they, when they wrote letters to the churches that they had planted, what caused them to shriek with joy? It was this. Paul says, verse 3, we always, back to Colossians 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why is he thanking God? What causes that, that, that exclamation of gratitude? It was this, I saw in you faith, and I saw love, and I saw hope, these marks of true Christian vitality. Here's what's going on here. These qualities, if you grow in any qualities this year, I hope and pray that you grow in these three. So what I want to do and the time we have remaining is just answer two questions. First of all, what are they? And second, how do you get them? Uh, what is the meaning of these three qualities? What are they? And how do you get them? And how do you grow in them? So first of all, let's answer the question, uh, what are they? All right, what, what are these three qualities here? And we're, of course, we're going to start with faith because uh, faith is almost always listed first, faith. Now, um, I just want to uh, push away several misconceptions about this idea of faith. First of all, what faith is not. Sometimes people get this idea that faith is a kind of vague optimism about life. Or a lot of times you hear this phrase, uh, so-and-so is a person of faith, which probably means that that person has some kind of inclination toward or uh, respect for sacred or divine things. That person is a person of faith, uh, having more to do with the person themselves rather than the object of their faith. But what Paul is saying here and what is meant by faith throughout the New Testament is not this vague kind of respect for religious things. It's not this intangible optimism about the sacred or divine. It has a much more specific and nuanced meaning than that. 
all right? So it doesn't mean just, it doesn't mean what we typically think of when we think of being a person of faith. And neither does it mean, a second misconception I want to push away, neither is it simply referring to faith in contrast with reason. As if there's some people and they're more logical and scientific-minded. They like evidence and data in order to trust something. And other people, they're just a li- it's not that they're it's not that they're unintelligent, but they're more willing to just make some kind of logical leap and believe something counter to the evidence. That's not what this is saying here. Faith is nearly is neither a vague optimism about sacred things, neither is it in contrast to something that is well reasoned and logical. And the reason why is because all throughout the Bible, the Bible is presenting us reasons to believe. Whenever we're given this exhortation, believe or trust or have faith, that exhortation is always backed up by a massive amount of data. In fact, the entire gospel of John, John says near the end of the gospel, these things are written so that you might believe the evidence of the miracles, the astounding character of Jesus Christ, the evidence for the resurrection. All these things are intended to appeal to our mind, not to bypass our rationality, but to speak to our rationality in order that we may make an intelligent intelligent choice about what or in whom to have faith. So this is neither a vague optimism, neither is it in contrast to reasoned decision-making or reasoned faith. It is instead a very specific kind of faith that is conditioned by the object of the faith. In other words, in whom or in what the faith is. Now look at the text. This is verse three, verse 4 of Colossians 1. We, I'm going to start with verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray, pray for you, since we heard of your faith, it doesn't end there, faith in Christ Jesus. So whatever this faith is, that is a quality that we are to grow in, that is, uh, that is commended as, as the quality uh, that Christians should have, as seen as a vital evidence of growth, it is a faith in a person. In other words, it is a response conditioned upon who that individual is. This is a personal trust. This is not contrary to reason. This is not vague optimism. This is a response based on the sort of person that we believe in. Now, we do this all the time. We have this, we have this kind of faith all the time. Uh, a man that I know of in, in a book I was reading recently tells a story about how he and his family were traveling to Europe. They were in France, and they were taking. They were on a train. They were waiting for a train to come in. And, and uh, on that, there's a crowded, busy platform. And in that crowd, he saw a very uh, anxious mother with a young son. And her eyes were scanning the faces of the people in the crowd, waiting for that train to arrive as she had her arms around her son. And her eyes landed upon this, this author and his family from, uh, traveling from America. And she came up to them in broken English saying, can my son ride this train with you? I need to send him to, to this other point, but can he? Can you accompany him? Why? Because just by looking at them, they appeared to be the sort of family that she can trust, and based upon that personal intuition, she said, I'm going to commit my son to you for his safety and well-being upon that up, uh, during that ride. This, the kind of trust that's being spoken of in the Bible, it's a personal trust. It is a response based upon what kind of person that we are trusting in. So that means in order to, for us to know what faith is, in order for you to know what this quality that you must grow in in this coming year, you must know something about Jesus. 
if indeed he is the object of your faith. What is Paul saying their trust is in regarding Jesus? Your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of times, um, because the word Jesus Christ is not unfamiliar in our, uh, in our culture, people can assume that it's a first and last name. Jesus is his first name, Christ is his second name. But that, then that's why it can be confusing when we read uh, a, a text like this in which the, the two are reversed, Christ Jesus. What this simply means is Christ is a title. It refers to his position. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. The Messiah or anointed one in the Old Testament was the one designated by God to be the ruler, the prophet, priest, and king. So what, what Paul is saying in here is this. Your faith that Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is the Messiah. That's the faith being spoken of here. So you see how specific it is. But that means if he is indeed the Messiah, that means he deserves all our trust, all our confidence, all our adoration, because Jesus does not present himself as a neutral character to be selected out of a variety of religious leaders. He said in the Gospels during his life, he said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This is how Jesus is presenting himself. He is presenting himself as the only way to God. So to grow in faith, to have faith, is to depend upon Jesus, the man from Nazareth, that he indeed is the one who has come to rescue the world from all its self-inflicted ruin and misery. That's what this means. And this is the trust, this is the faith, this is the response that Paul was so thankful for when he observed it in the Colossians. And in fact, in every church to which he wrote, in every church that he had that he commented on, he said, I thank my God when I observed your faith. Now, I've told you I'm going to, I'm going to explain what it is, what, what these things are, and then how to grow in them. So I've got to move on. I could easily get so excited about faith that I won't, I won't move on to, to uh, hope. We're going to deal with hope now. We're going to, for now, skip love. But if you look at verse 5, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in, in heaven. Now, hope and faith are related in a very uh, integral way. Uh, faith is related primarily to what, who Jesus is and what he has done. And hope relates primarily to who Jesus is and what will be done because of who Jesus is. So if faith is oriented, this isn't a perfect uh, dis distinction, but if faith is oriented mostly toward the past, that is who Jesus, what Jesus has done, Hope is oriented primarily toward the future. With faith, we see that Jesus has fulfilled the promises of God. In hope, we see that there are promises of God yet to be fulfilled. Faith would be kind of like, referring to, back down to Christmas, faith would be like a few days ago when the presents are wrapped under the Christmas tree and you look at the presents, let's say for kids, you know, you're really excited about this. Maybe if you're, if you're growing up, you might have already known what you're going to get for, for Christmas. But if you're a kid, you don't know. And the presents are there under the Christmas tree, and you're wrapped. And faith knows that there's something really good wrapped in the, in the present under the Christmas tree. That's faith. And hope, hope, is the excitement that on Christmas morning you're going to be able to unwrap it. You see, the, you see the connection between faith and hope. 
faith, faith believes that there is something there. Faith, faith knows. It's, it's a kind of knowledge. Faith knows that it's good for you. And, and hope is that sense of expectation and anticipation for when it can be truly yours. I mean, right now, the label on the Christmas present has your name on it, so it's yours in a sense. But it's not yours in the sense that it will be when you open it up and start playing with it and, and enjoying it. In, in a similar way, the Bible presents faith and, and hope uh, closely connected. We have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have faith that He has come to rescue us from our sin and death. And yet when we look at the realities in the world around us, when we look at our own selves, we look at the decay and the chaos, we have to acknowledge, but things aren't all right now. Things aren't all rescued. I've been rescued. I am being rescued from my sin and the effects of it. But this world is still a broken place. And yet because Jesus has, has broken into this world and because he has begun to, to usher his kingdom in, it creates, it stirs in our hearts a hope. That is not a wishful thinking, but this confident expectation that one day Jesus will return as the King of kings and Lord of lords and have dominion over everything from sea to sea. That is the hope. That is the Christian hope. And that is what Paul says, I, I saw this in you. I observed it, this in you. And when I saw it, it was like seeing the little green sprout push up to the soil. And it made me say, God, thank you for the hope that you've implanted in the hearts of the Colossian believers. That's faith and hope and now love. All right, love. love look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, love, as I, as I pointed out earlier from 1 Corinthians 13, love is, is, um, is elevated as the one quality of the three qualities that is going to endure. And the reason for that is, is very simple to understand. That is, that is this. When, when in the future, and we don't know when that future will be, when in the future, as the Apostle John puts it in his first epistle, we will see him, we will see Christ... We will no longer have to exercise faith because our faith will have been sight. Neither will we have that, that longing expectation, that tension between the already and the not yet. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, we are saved in hope, but who hopes for what he sees? I mean, if, it's, if you see it, it's not hope. So that's why in, in the end, or rather the true beginning, when we see Christ face to face as believers, then faith... And hope will vanish, and all that will remain is love. That's why Paul says, the greatest of these is love. Right now there's hope and faith, but love always abides. Now, why love, though? If you think about what's wrong with our world, so much of it could be assigned to a lack of love. A lack of love. Love is... The hardest thing anybody can do. Love is often um, set forth as being just a natural overflow of our hearts. And yet, if we were to dig a little deeper into our hearts, we find that we, that love goes absolutely cross-grained to the way we like to operate. Love, here's what love is. Love is giving of yourself for the good of others. It's giving of yourself for the good of others. And that we find we find easy at times when we feel like we have enough good to give. 
but very hard when we feel like we're running out. And it's also hard because love is totally like it's the reverse current of what has been going on in the world ever since the fall. It stands opposite to self-centeredness and selfishness. And what Paul is saying and what the other writers in the New Testament are saying when they, when they extol love as the, the prime Christian virtue, they're saying this, love is the reversal of what has spun this universe out of control. And that is people putting themselves at the center of their lives and doing everything for their own selfish purposes. And you see how love exists between faith and hope because right now, yes, we're looking to what Jesus has done for us to rescue us from our sin and what, we will, be, what will be done to us in the future. What do we do in the meantime? Now we love. Love is what currently exists in the meantime and will continue to exist. Notice in the, the text, going back to the text, uh, I want to make two points about, two comments about this love. First of all, that this is, love is sacrificial. Love is giving. That's what I meant earlier when I said love is giving of yourself for the good of others. But love is also unbiased. Notice who it's for. It's love for all the saints. This is why love is such a hard thing. The, the saints, Paul is referring here to just the other believers, the other people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And believe me, they were a very diverse group. Uh, they were from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of uh, layers, from all kinds of layers of, of, on the socioeconomic uh, strata. There's people that were, they were masters and they were slaves. There was, uh, there was they're all uh, members from the, from the, the different uh, parts of the household, it, all together in these churches, all kinds of different people, all kinds of different backgrounds. There was a great deal of diversity. And Paul, what Paul didn't say is this, I want you to grow, or I'm so excited, I'm so thankful to God when I see this, this faith of the Lord Jesus and your, and your hope and, and the love that you have for the people that look and act like you. He didn't say, I'm so thankful for the love that you have when people do other things that are, do other people do things that are kind for you. No, Paul said this, the love for all the saints. This is an unbiased indiscriminate sort of love. Now, I could, I could stop here and say, now that you see that what these things are, now go ahead and go into 2022 and do them. I could, I could say that. And just try really hard to get this tryout of, triad of Christian virtues done. Just get it done. But if I put it that way, it would leave us rather hopeless. Because I think as I've described these things, what becomes apparent to us, especially when it comes to love, is that I can't do this. If, if love is, is giving of myself for the good of others, at some point, I'm going to run dry. And it's going to be a lot sooner than later. See, when Paul gives these Christian virtues, he does not say, now here, here's, what you, here's what you need to do, now go do it, as we would, tend to, we would normally think that way. Instead, what Paul is doing is, this is who you are, now become more of who you are. You see, the, the secret of these qualities and growing in these qualities is not just from the sheer force of your willpower. It comes from something else entirely. And we find that in our text. Look on in verse 5. Of this, he's speaking of the hope laid up for you in heaven, 
Of this hope you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. What Paul is saying is this. It's not just that Paul sees these qualities and says, oh, now that you have these qualities, now you can receive God's favor because now you've somehow earned it. No, where do these qualities start? They started when they understood the grace of God and truth. It was not the plant that dug down into the soil and created a seed. It was that the seed of the gospel gave rise to the fruit of these qualities. In my yard, there is an oak tree. And, and there are some times when in the, in the spring or summer, I'll see these little plants growing up to the ground all, this, all around this oak tree. And if you gently pull a tug on this plant, you know what comes out? What, what comes out from, the, from that little plant? There is this acorn that has started to crack open, and outside that acorn is coming this, this little miniature oak tree. It will, it will be an oak tree, I suppose, if, if I let it go uh, long enough. What's going on here? It's that the seed is giving life to the plant. In the same way, the seed of the gospel, that is the grace of God, the message about the grace of God, is what allows us to grow in these qualities in the first place. He says, since you understood the grace of God in truth, since you really understood the grace of God, what is the grace of God? Well, the grace of God is best told in a story. It is the story that while human beings, while you and I, have so ruined and corrupted ourselves, God, out of the fullness of his love for us, sent Jesus Christ, who lived such a life that would have deserved all the honor and adoration ever, but actually ended in death, a cross kind of death. But because of that, because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, God says, I will apply everything good Jesus did and I'll apply that to your account. And I'll treat you as I treat my son. That is the grace of God. That is the message that, that although we could not earn any bit of God's favor, God in his grace and favor has made us, has allowed us to experience it by faith in Jesus. That is understanding the grace of God and truth. And if you begin to think about it, you'll realize that you can grow in none of these qualities unless you do understand the grace of God and truth. Unless you understand that God has so lavished his love upon you, not because you deserve it, but simply because he's a loving God, it's that conviction then that, it turns and that allows you to turn around and freely love other people. The reason why we get so stingy in our love, the reason why we're so self-protecting, the reason why we feel like we have to cut other people down in order to exalt ourselves, the reason why we need to defend and justify or criticize or slander is because we're always trying to build ourselves up. And the grace of God says this, there's no need for that. In Jesus Christ, you can have all the acceptance and love and, and more than you could ever ask for. What does that allow us to do? That strengthens our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That strengthens our hope 
in the coming in what Jesus Christ will bring. And that allows us to love the way God wants us to love. As long as you suspect that somehow God is is stingy with you, as long as you feel a little bit unloved, then of course you're not going to be able to show other people the love that God wants you to. Of course you're going to be miserly with love. But once you understand the grace of God and truth, that is what allows you to grow in that quality. So the question that I want us to, the questions I should say, I want us to ask ourselves as we go into this new year. A week from today, we gather January 2nd, it's going to be 2022, and I'm going to preach a different sermon for us as a, as a church as a whole. But for now, this question is for you personally. Am I growing in faith? Am I growing in my trust of Jesus? Does, let me ask you this, does your faith, does it at all affect the way you read the news? Does your faith that Jesus of Nazareth is the king and is your savior, does that affect the way that you see the headlines, the level of anxiety that you, that you allow yourself to succumb to? Does it affect the way that you, that you treat your, your neighbors and, and your spouse and your children that Jesus is Savior and Lord, not me? Does it affect the way you view your career, your occupation, that only Jesus can be the thing that saves me, not my job? Are you growing in hope? Are you growing in your expectation and longing that this world is not your home? But there is coming a day when, when Jesus will make everything right. Do you long for that or are you settle? Are you settling for what is now? And perhaps what is the most difficult question? Because it's the question where the rubber meets the road is this. Are you growing in love? Are you truly growing in love? It's easy, I think, to fake faith. It's easy to fake hope. But where faith and hope are emerge into reality is whether you love other people. Are you growing in your love? You say, I, I don't know, but I want to. Here's how you can do it. Understand the grace of God in truth. The more you fix your eyes upon Jesus, just like I told you near the beginning of this time with, with teenager Spar Charles Spurgeon as he sat miserably in the back of that auditorium in that snowy Sunday, the preacher said, look to Jesus and live. Here's where growing in your faith and hope and love comes. It's learning more and more about Jesus. It's understanding his infinite love for you that frees you to love others as you should. Let's bow our heads. Can I speak to you for a moment while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed? You might be here uh, this morning as uh, someone who doesn't understand the grace of God and truth, or you're just beginning to learn about it. And it's, it struck you maybe for the first time that faith is not mere vague, wishful thinking, uh, nor is it contrary to reason, but faith is and can be a well-reasoned decision to trust in Jesus of Nazareth as your master as your savior as the one who rescues you and the world from all the the, the misery that we're in and, and if that has never struck you that way before then i want you to i want you to carefully think about this jesus is worthy of your trust
And he is inviting you to put all your trust in him. And you can do that this morning. And if you need more questions answered, then I invite you to please talk to me right after, the, right after this service. I'll be in the foyer. I'd love to chat with you. And you're, maybe you're here this morning and you are, you've considered on a deeper level, am I growing in these areas? Will I grow in these areas? Can I ask you to do this, to resolve in your own heart to more fully understand the grace of God in truth for you so that you can grow in faith, in hope, and love. Our Father, I pray that you would help us as we seek to let this word sink down into our hearts and affect every part of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name.